Stop it! Stop it! Shrieking at them, I dove between them. I didn't see Vanessa step out of the grocery store. Get off! I begged Anthony. I gave him a hard tug, and all three of us bounced into Vanessa. I saw her mouth fall open, her hands fly up, and two bags of groceries bounced to the sidewalk. I heard one bag rip, and I heard cans and bottles clatter onto the street. I saw a puddle of deep red ketchup that had leaked from the broken ketchup bottle. The carton of eggs lay open and shattered in the gutter. I still had Anthony's shoulders gripped in both hands. He pulled free of me with a hard jerk. Sorry, he cried to Vanessa. Then he jumped over some of her groceries and went running down the street. I turned to Vanessa and nearly gasped when I saw the look of fury on her cold, pale face. I grabbed Cole's arm. I started to pull him away. But Vanessa stepped forward, her long black dress sweeping along the sidewalk. She pointed to Cole with a slender finger tipped in black nail polish. Then she pointed at me. Chicken, chicken, she whispered. Hello. And welcome. To Say Podcast and Die. The podcast where two queers sit in our closet and tell you about Goosebumps. My name's Andy. And I'm Alyssa. And we are here to talk to you about Goosebumps number 53, Chicken Chicken. That's right. So I'm not trying to just be a disagreement person, (laughs) but people told me this book was terrible. Mm -hmm. Everyone kept saying, oh, Chicken Chicken, oh, wait till you get to Chicken Chicken. It's such a dorky book. It was really cool. I really enjoyed it, too. It has great body horror. It has one of the coolest pseudo-villain characters, Vanessa, one of the coolest uh, women of the Gooseverse we've gotten since Clarissa the Crystal Woman. (laughs) I think this is one of those things where, this is my theory, so I haven't read anything of Blogger Beware except for someone tweeted a homophobic comment he made once at me just to let me know. And I was like, oh, wow, what a jerk. All right. Not for me then. (laughs) Right. And I never bothered to read anymore. But it seems like when people have, as a group, a strong dislike of a book, it can be traced back to Blogger Beware not liking it. Mm Mm-hmm. And my assumption, again, haven't read his stuff, but I assume probably what he did was say this is a stupid premise. But, like, anything is a stupid premise if you don't do it well, right? Like, it reminds me of that line in The Simpsons where Smithers wants to make a musical about Malibu Stacy, right? And Mr. Burns is like, a play about a doll? Why not just make a play about a common cat or the king of Siam? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, or with Twilight, when they're like, well, the vampire sparkle, isn't that stupid? And it's like, well, not objectively. Like, is it more stupid than vampires not liking garlic? (laughs) It's just a premise. Do what you will with it. Yeah. Yeah, I I also came away with the feeling that this was unfairly maligned, and I kind of wonder, too, if that was what happened. Because it seems like it's not just in Goosebumps, it's in a lot of things, right, where somebody will sort of originate an opinion and lots of people will jump onto that opinion. Yeah, it's true. Then then this confirmation bias thing happens where you're sort of looking for things that confirm, yes, it's stupid or no, it's not. Yeah, because if you think about, say, some of the really good ones, like, that everyone agrees are really good, I should say, like, say, cheese and die. I mean, someone was like, oh, it's just about this, like, camera that kills people. It's about a camera that makes people fall down. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That doesn't sound necessarily like a great premise, right? Actually, what it makes me think of is uh, that scene in Jurassic Park where the kid's like, that doesn't sound very scary. More like a six foot turkey. And And then then, so we in this scenario are Sam Neill coming at that kid with a raptor claw to like put the fear of God in him. Yeah, exactly. Which actually takes us to our cover. That's right. It's a a redheaded girl screaming. She's got a chicken's body, giant chicken talons, and uh, she's got a comb and uh, the like whatever you call the droopy things that hang down. A waddle? A waddle, yeah. And yeah, we got a purple sort of thunder lightning storm happening in the background coming to to cloud up this beautiful day and uh, and the chicken coop. It looks really cool. I love this cover. Well, I didn't love this cover before I read the book. I don't like farm stories typically, so (laughs) I wouldn't have been interested in what something said on a farm as a kid. But now that I like am familiar with the story, I'm like, this is pretty cool, especially the background. The face is a little goofy, which also makes me wonder if that's why a lot of the Tim Jacobus covers don't have faces. Mm-hmm. For example, Haunted Mask, where it's just the mask and it's really scary. So yeah, so like I, I wouldn't have gravitated to this one naturally either, because I tend to not be a horror comedy person. But that's not actually what the story is. No, not at all. Well, in human faces, I mean, A, let's face it, are silly. It's true. <laughs> and B, I've noticed actually in a lot of the UK editions, they will have a lot more people's faces on them. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they end up looking like they're for a younger audience. Mm, interesting. Because I guess maybe it gives a suggestion like, this is a story for you to identify with the protagonist or something like that. Well, bird's eye view of the plot. 
as it were. (laughs) It's a pretty simple plot. We have Crystal. She's 12. She has a brother named Cole. He's 10. They piss off, along with one of their friends, Anthony, a local goth woman named Vanessa who studies magic and is into politeness. They don't know that second part yet. They suspect the first part. They knock into her, drop her groceries. Anthony apologizes and runs away. Cole and Crystal just run away. Mm Mm-hmm. Right before they do run away, but after they fail to apologize, Vanessa points at them and says, chicken, chicken. And then over the next few days, they slowly start to turn into chickens, growing feathers, mouths turning into beaks, clucking uncontrollably. And nobody seems to notice that this is happening to them, which I thought was really striking. Mm -hmm. I want to get into that a bit. But they go to try and get her to turn them back, and they figure out her issue is she is really into politeness, and because they didn't apologize, that's why she cursed them and not Anthony, who has, since the incident, just gotten good at putting. (laughs) So they apologize uh, using a typewriter because they're birds at this point, and she's like, uh, they, they write her a thank you note for teaching them about politeness, and she's like, what a nice thing you note. I will turn you back. And so she does. And then she gets some sodas. Cole burps after drinking his soda. Crystal laughs. And then Vanessa points at both of them and says, pig, pig. Yeah, they didn't learn anything. No. But I feel like it's not going to be a huge transformation compared to being transformed to a chicken. Yeah. You're, you're at least a mammal. <laughs> they say that humans and pigs taste alike, you know. <laughs> That's true. They do. All right. So let's dive in. Right off the bat, is this her first book written in present tense? I did not notice that it even was. It starts in present. It says, I carry the seed bucket out to the yard and they come scurrying over, clucking and squawking and flapping their greasy wings. And then later it says, Cole agrees. But then by the bottom of page two, I tossed a final handful of seeds on the ground and hopped backward away from the grass. So it starts in present tense and then never returns. Just for a page. Just for a page. That's happened in some other R.L. Stein books where it starts to be from one character's perspective just for a page and then it switches. Do you have a read on that? Why start in present and then let it go by page two? I feel like he's a real book factory at this point. So I think I think it may just be a production issue. He just forgot. Well, it's one thing to forget because like that's the kind of mistake you can make. I'm just surprised an editor didn't catch that. Maybe they thought it didn't matter. Maybe the editors were also trying to put out even more of these books than Arl Stein, actually. I mean, probably, yeah. Well, it puts us right in the moment of <laughs> feeding chickens For a and minute. being disgusted by them, which is how Crystal feels. She hates chickens, and I don't blame her. I mean, I don't hate chickens. You don't like birds. I feel uncomfortable when birds are walking near me. Yeah. It would make having chickens very hard. Yeah, I would never go feed a bunch of chickens. Yeah. They would attack my legs. That's my fear. I mean, they wouldn't, but I understand why you fear that. They might. I guess I can't guarantee that they wouldn't, so I shouldn't shouldn't bother making promises I can't keep. Crystal hates feeding the chickens. She hates chickens in general. Her brother Cole also doesn't like it, but their parents apparently grew up in the Bronx and wanted to get out of the city and live on a farm. If they want chickens, they can move to Brooklyn. (laughs) Like, come on. They're a kind of New Yorker who I think that we have met who thinks they want to live on a farm. But what that means in practice is I want a yard where I have some chickens and some vegetables. Like, this is not a working farm. That's true. I want to... And and it isn't because they're both computer programmers. Yeah. (laughs) That's their real job. And it seems like even though they've lived here for eight years, they still haven't put a fence around their vegetable garden. Yeah. Even though they have chickens running around. When we open, after this initial chicken feeding... Crystal is looking for her brother. He's AWOL. So she goes to the bakery to ask Mrs. Wagner if she saw him. And she says, oh, I saw Cole and his friend Anthony out by Pullman's Pond. Because apparently Cole hangs around this bakery to ask for free donuts. I feel like Mrs. Wagner is a character we do not get enough information about. She seems to always be watching what's going on in the town. She's up odd hours. But no one suspects her the way they suspect Vanessa. No, she's just a busybody. But she doesn't wear black. Yeah, that's the thing. Also, I wonder if this is a foreshadowing the bird thing where it's just hanging out waiting for bread products. Ooh, that's good thinking. <laughs> um, waiting for little bits of old donut. We also get this moment of awkward exposition about Crystal's appearance. Mrs. Wagner tells her how she should be a model, which it makes for really weird dialogue. But the other thing I noticed is that Arl Stein is trying to give us expository information in a way he doesn't usually. Usually it's, I'm 12 years old and I'm really tall and have red hair. But mm. here he has another character say it. 
I guess, yeah, he was trying to be a little experimental in this one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good for him. In book 53, shaking (laughs) things up. Even as he's revisiting old tropes, for example, the one where you have a 12-year-old who is tasked with taking care of a 10-year-old, even though they are effectively the same age. Cole apparently always gets up to hijinks, and that's what he's doing now. He's not at the pond, really. He's at Vanessa's old falling-down farmhouse. Vanessa wears all black all the time, so I just immediately started picturing Vampira or Elvira. That's <laughs> that's what I ha- that's the image I had in my head this entire book. I can totally see that. I think that's somewhat implied. I'm also just interested in how Crystal feels about her. Because mm-hmm. Crystal says, I guess you might say she's the most interesting person in Goshen Falls. Uh-huh. That's her first thing. And then she says, and the most weird. And then she says, she looks like someone from a horror movie. So... Crystal, as someone who doesn't really fit in the, in this town, I mean, all of her friends are on a 4-H trip this weekend, and it seems like she doesn't participate in 4-H or really love living in the country. It seems like there's maybe a little bit of connection between her and Vanessa, some interest on Crystal's part. Yeah, I agree. So when she gets to the edge of Vanessa's property, Anthony and Cole have dared a couple other kids, Franny and Jeremy, to fill Vanessa's mailbox with water. <laughs> and Alyssa sent me a very apropos Simpsons. I guess we were mentioning Simpsons a few times in this one. Simpsons clip, uh, the one where Homer's trying to water the mail. Yeah, and the mailwoman goes, are you planning to water the mail? And he's like, run away. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is essentially what happens yeah. here. Anthony says not to do it because one time a kid bothered Vanessa and she made this kid's head blow up and get soft like a sponge. Yeah, Tommy Pottridge, which that sounds to me like an allergic reaction. It does. It happened to my brother at scout camp one time. His face, he looked like (laughs) the orc in Two Towers that has the kind of bad Botox. It's like, the age of man has ended. (laughs) That one. So I think that's what happened to this kid. Crystal says for them not to do it. She objects to this prank, but ultimately doesn't stop it. So Franny and Jeremy go and and water Vanessa's mail. Uh, (laughs) And then Vanessa spots them. Franny and Jeremy run away, but she sees Crystal, Cole, and Anthony. Yeah, she glares at them. And there's a lot of the kids in this just taking off running. If you think about an ordinary social interaction and then someone just runs away from that, like, it's very awkward. It also happened in How I Learned to Fly. Remember where he just screams and runes out of the party? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Which, solution. I wish I could pull that and not, like, get away with it. Oh, the yeah. Way his friends are like, you want to hang out again? As opposed to being like, well, that relationship is over. I think that's called being self-conscious about inappropriate behavior (laughs) versus just doing it and moving on, like standing by it. (laughs) They run past, again, Mrs. Wagner always, you know. Snooping. Snooping. She's standing outside to see what's happening and they just run past her. (laughs) And when they get home, Cole and Anthony are laughing their heads off from anxiety, guilt, hysteria. Of course, they say, we don't know why we're laughing, because why examine those emotions (laughs) that come up when you plague a small town outsider figure? We've kept our town safe yet again by keeping the outsider in their place. That's right. Crystal is feeling guilty and paranoid about being cursed. She slams her hand in the refrigerator door and is convinced that's Vanessa's fault, even though she might have just slammed the refrigerator on her hand. Cole tells her that it must have been Vanessa's curse on them. And, you know, to some extent, the interaction did cause it because she was distracted by thinking about it. But again, not Vanessa's fault. Fault of a guilty conscience. Mm. So then mom and dad show up. They send out Cole to round up some chickens. Yeah, chicken roundup. I don't see why the kids have to do chicken work. They didn't ask to move to Ohio, which is, I assume, where they are, because otherwise, why would they be singing the Ohio State song in their music class? That was also my assumption. But also, I think that this is maybe just how it is if you grow up on a farm. You're like, you're here in part to work. If it's a farm that actually <laughs> is a farm. Because I think mom and dad want to believe this is a farm. To the they want to tell themselves they're farmers. Not to the extent that they are actually going to go to the trouble to make money from it, but to the extent that they're going to make their children do the work that they supposedly moved here to want to do. Andy, it's called building character. Ah. So anyway, that night, Cole pulls a prank on Crystal where he pretends that he's Vanessa coming to get her. Hey, he wears a black veil and everything. Yeah. Commitment. He's like reaching for her throat. She gets all pissed. And then she has a dream about a cat. Another one of our scary cat dreams. She dreams about an ugly black cat with yellow eyes and a blood red tongue that is at the end of her bed. Well, it starts out, it's, it's really interesting the way Arlstein does dreams. So it starts out in this all white room and then suddenly it's her room and then the cat's at the foot of her bed and it starts screeching and then it's trying to swallow her. I just think Arlstein always gives us so much detail to a dream. I would love to just cut and paste them all out into a document or for someone else to do that for me. <laughs> and then to look Hint. at... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) To look at what are dreams in the Gooseverse. 
Yeah. Because he always he, he always puts a lot of detail into them. Mm-hmm. You could have a goose verse specific on the interpretation of dreams. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Go. A little addendum to the <laughs> Freud text. So the next morning, Crystal eats some cornflakes, and we learn that she plays basketball, and she's the sixth player, but she really wants to be a starter. There's so much cornflakes and orange juice in the goose verse. Anytime a kid in the goose verse needs a little jolt of courage or energy, they down some orange juice, <laughs> I have noticed. Like a shot? Like yeah. Courage. Yeah. But yeah, so she's hoping to get some extra playing time on the basketball court. Coach Clay is like, I'm going to give you a chance, kid. She also has to go get a present for her friend, Lucy Ann, who is turning 13 this Saturday. And then Cole comes down and he has red blotches on his face and he's pretending that something's wrong with him. His mom is about to call the 911. And then he's like, haha, no, I did it. It's a just marker. red marker, which yeah. he must be really good with marker if mm-hmm. he could make it look like not just circles, you know? Yeah. Also, I just thought we got a lot of banter between mom and Crystal, which is, I think, a departure from a lot of Stein verse things we've gotten lately. Really get a picture of their home life relationships. Mm-hmm. Both this family and this community felt really real to me. Mm-hmm. I agree. I thought. I have a note in here eventually that I thought the world building in this one was really good. Like, I felt like this town and community was fleshed out in a way that they really haven't been for a while. Yeah, I felt the same way. And I felt the characters, maybe as a result, were also fleshed out in a way they aren't usually. I agree. She goes to get Luciana CD from the, the Mini Mart, and the boys come along playing a rousing game of egg toss. It's so annoying. You have to make your own fun, I it's guess. like an Egg Monsters from Mars. Well, it just always bugs me when someone wastes food. Like, a chicken worked really hard to make that. Yeah. Didn't necessarily want you to eat it, but certainly didn't want to just be tossed around until it breaks, Uh, which it then does on Anthony's head. Yeah, Cole hits Anthony with it. They start fighting. There's an old hound dog who's like, I'm very interested in this yolk egg that has fallen on the sidewalk. And I'm also sprawled in the middle of Main Street. (laughs) People, be careful with your dogs. I feel like specifically in the Goosebumps books, this is this repeated problem. Mm -hmm. As they're tussling, they slam into Vanessa, who's just come out of the grocery store, and she drops her groceries and they're kind of destroyed. She was apparently buying eggs and ketchup. She doesn't strike me as a ketchup with eggs person. Yeah. And also there was a glass breaking. So she buying her ketchup in a glass bottle? Yeah, I think it was like those Heinz, classic Heinz glass Mm. bottle type of thing. But yeah, I wasn't expecting her to be a ketchup person. No, me neither. Maybe sriracha. But like a fancy sriracha? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, an organic ketchup from Whole Foods or something. Not from Whole Foods, from like your local boutique store. You're right. She wouldn't shop at Whole Foods. What am I thinking? Anthony says, sorry, and runs away. The other two she points at and says chicken chicken, which does seem like an accurate description of how they're asking because they just like run away without saying anything. I didn't think about that part, the extent to which it's a punishment fit, punishment fit the crime situation, but you're totally right. Yeah. And also like if I was the one goth in a small town, I'd totally work this angle too, like to keep the kids away from me. Yeah. I was thinking it must be weird for her that children run from her, but yeah. maybe it's just nice for her that children <laughs> run from her. So that night over spaghetti and salad, dad has had a bad day. He isn't talking. Yeah, the only words he's spoken today are pass the Parmesan. Crystal has also had a bad day. She didn't do that well in basketball. The dynamic between Crystal and her parents, I was noticing, is they very much want to deny that she might not be good enough, and she really wants them to confront that she might not be good enough. She is like, I did not play well at basketball. And they're like, it's going to be fine. And she's like, no, it's not. I'm not good enough to be a starter. And they don't want to acknowledge that, which I wonder if their big decision to radically change their lives and move across the country and try to become farmers might give them a tendency towards denying when something isn't working out. It must also be hard as a parent when your child says, you know, I've been working hard at this and it's not working out. Like, I feel like it would go against your instincts to be like, yeah, you're probably not good enough. <laughs> Try something else. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine this being an awkward conversation. Well, awkward conversation for mom. Dad is not talking. <laughs> well, the parenting book I read, the one parenting book <laughs> I read, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, says you don't need to confirm or deny what they're saying. Just encourage them to keep talking about it. <laughs> Just say, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> deny your skills in basketball. That's exactly what you're supposed to say, Alyssa. You're ready. You don't even need to read the book. (laughs) Well, Cole 
has perfect pitch, we learn. Yeah, that's cool. We've got two solos in their chorus's performance, and they have chorus practice tomorrow, and that's basically what we learn in dinner. And also, Crystal has spaghetti sauce on her chin. Kids have a hard time eating spaghetti <laughs> sauce in the goose first, even when they're 12. A lot of people get food on their chin in general, actually. Uh-huh. Like, remember that kid who had, like, tuna salad or egg salad? On his that... forehead? Yeah. I think that was Sage's and Dai, too. Yeah. Well, so then we go to choir practice. There are only eight of them, four boys and four girls. They have a performance in two weeks, and they're nowhere near ready. That is so true to having gone to a really small school. Yeah. I went to a tiny school, and by the end, our quote-unquote jazz ensemble only had three people in it. Oh, no. And none were good. It was really embarrassing. (laughs) There were 70 people in my high school. Yeah. In the entire high school. And that does sound like this is the situation here, because we learn later that kids have to be bussed in from other counties, because this town's really not big enough to justify its own school. Yeah, kids have to come from 30 miles away, Mm -hmm. so it also means they don't have much of a social life, and I can see why there wouldn't be really time for extracurricular activities. Yeah. You have to go home 30 miles. And then do 4-H stuff. Well, Lucy Ann suggested that they lip sync to some popular songs, and she's not kidding. She's their only soprano, so a lot is riding on her. Mm-hmm. I can see why she'd want backup. Also, I noticed that Mrs. Mellon, the music teacher, calls the children her canaries. Mm-hmm. It looks like in a coal mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little weird. What is she testing on them? I know, right? When I see something going wrong with you, I'll run. Yeah, exactly. Then a spider drops into Lucy Ann's hair. Mm-hmm. And then they sing Beautiful Ohio. And I looked it up. Crystal says it's kind of a drippy song. Do you want to know about Beautiful Ohio? Sure. In 1969, it was adopted as Ohio State song. According According to this OhioHistoryCentral.org website, (laughs) which I assume they know, the author was Mary Earle, whose real name was Robert Bobo King. Huh. That's of the music. And then someone named Ballard McDonald wrote the lyrics to the original song, which is from 1918. And what it's about is these this person wandering, looking for somewhere nice, and then found Ohio, which has grain and cities and freedom and factories. That's what it's about. (laughs) Well, then. And then that's actually the updated lyrics. They updated those lyrics in 1989. To get rid of factories? No, they added factories. (laughs) So that's the new version. That's cruel, because there's probably far fewer factories than there were. I would agree. The original lyrics, the chorus was just, it was pretty there, and I dreamed of a lover. The end. Hmm. So that's the version Arl Stein would have known. Yeah, I guess so. Well, he probably knew both versions. I bet it was big news for Ohioans when they changed the chorus of the state song. Hmm. So by 1989, they'd be singing this one about factories. But Arl Stein growing up would have been singing this one about dreaming of a pair of eyes that looked in mine. Beautiful Ohio in dreams. Again, I see visions of what used to be. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah, I think both versions of this song are a bummer. But you know what's <laughs> not a bummer? Hmm. Ohio State's rock song, which is Hang On Sloopy. <laughs> Okay, let's get back to music practice. Cole is supposed to have one of his solos here, and when he opens his mouth, he starts clucking like a chicken. And of course, no one believes that it's involuntary. And so that night, Crystal's pissed about it, and he's trying to explain he couldn't help it, but she doesn't want to hear. I felt like we had shades of girl who cried monster here. Yeah, for sure. And she goes to bed, and in the middle of the night, she hears chicken noises, and she looks around outside of the chicken coop, whatever, and she realizes it's coming from her brother's room. So he must be panicking. Or maybe that's how he snores now. (laughs) So then we cut to Lucy Ann's party. She has a big family. Kids from school are there, as well as Lucy's, you know, extended family. They're the most successful farmers in town. So that's why they're able to throw this big roast chicken and pie feast. Yeah, and give kids tractor rides. Mm -hmm. They have two birthday cakes. This is a sweet party. And a giant blueberry pie. And a blueberry pie. Like the size of a pizza. A vanilla cake, a chocolate cake, and a blueberry pie. I love this party. Church is in this book again. Yeah. Earl Stein's putting church in over and over. I'm like, is that Scholastic's idea? Like, you should put more church. You know, Americans, they like that. They'll read more of it. Did he become aware that people do that? Yeah, because Lucienne was saying she's going to come to chorus practice on Sunday after church. Just, I was surprised it came up. I wonder what religions there are in this universe. There's at least some Wicca, pagan type yes. stuff. And it seems to be something that people are suspicious of. Very suspicious of sorcerers and things. And there seems to be at least some cults that worship underground monsters. Mm -hmm. And there's Christianity. Do we know that? There's Christmas. Ah, yes. Good point. 
they sing happy birthday and Crystal realizes that she's kind of making clicking noises and she can't help it. She's also having a hard time talking. She's also staring at Lucy Ann in the firelight and thinking how pretty she is. Mm -hmm. Just an observation. Yeah. But yes, go on. Well, she goes to the bathroom to get some chapstick. and Which, you don't borrow chapstick from a friend. No. And it's like the family's family Family chapstick. chapstick. And she has seven siblings. Ew. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty gross. Now that I think about it. I hadn't thought about it. It's pretty bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe they, like, went to Costco and they have just a giant tub of spare chapsticks. Maybe it's that. Find an unopened one. Well, exactly. And then she finds that her lips are protruding and bumpy and they feel like fingernails. This is really gross. Yeah, it was so disgusting. And she keeps saying she thinks there's, like, a crust on them but yeah. it come off. This is some really good body horror. Yeah. Yeah, it was really gross. And she wonders if it's an allergic reaction, but, but definitely she... doesn't want to stay around to be seen. Yeah, she's still scared and she wonders if she'll ever enjoy cake again, which is the true horror of this book. <laughs> it's a good point. And so she runs home because that's what we do yeah. when confronted with a concern <laughs> or an awkward, potentially awkward social situation. <laughs> yeah. And then she runs into Cole and he shows her that he's growing feathers. And she thinks he's kidding that he's taped them on, but she pulls one out and it leaves a little hole. So she plucks him, but she doesn't want to talk to him about her lips. And he keeps kind of clucking as he tries to talk, too. He can't control it. In my notes, it says, at this point, I really don't get why people don't like chicken chicken. Yeah. (laughs) This is like where I was like, wait, what? (laughs) This is awesome. What I like about this one is that everything keeps escalating. Yeah. It doesn't do the thing some of them do where it's like fake out, fake out, fake it for a long time. It's like from here on out, the body horror gets more and more intense. Mm Mm-hmm. Mom and dad stay out very late, so she can't talk to them about what's going on. And she's also feeling self-conscious about it. So there's this also interesting push-pull of wanting your parents' help, but also not wanting your parents to see these things. Yeah. Very puberty vibes here also. I was thinking that too. And then in the morning, she has feathers too. She plucks them. She helps Cole pluck his. He's also having the lips issue. And they decide this must be Vanessa's doing. Yeah. And so they call out to their parents. They go running through the house. We're turning into chickens. Vanessa has powers. It's all real. And they hear mom say, good. I need two more chickens for the barbecue this afternoon, which I was like, oh, that's so it is a fake out because she's just on the phone with Mrs. Mellon, who's offering to bring some non-spicy barbecue chicken for the yeah. people who don't want mom's spicy barbecue chicken. I also thought it was going to be her just making a joke like, yeah, sure, your chickens, we needed two more. But yeah, so I, I like this too. moment. Yeah. yeah, well, I just thought it was such a good horror moment where the kids are like brought up short and are, you know, thinking, well, is this what they've been raising us for? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's what they've been raising their chickens for. Well, that's the thing is they're looking around at the counter and it's full of chicken parts. Yeah, and they start getting really upset by it. It yeah. starts to disgust them. And that disgust it, the idea of eating chicken builds and grows over the course of the book. So when they do get to talk to mom, she is very much like, I do not have time to deal with this. It's... I have a lot of people coming over. Yeah, and this is one where I'm like, she, yeah, I can see why she wants them to help her also. Yes. She's like, you slept till noon, you missed your chorus practice, and you need to put some plates out. Yes. And also, at this point, I'm also wondering if the chickens they're eating are from the grocery store or their chickens. I I was wondering that too. Yeah. I don't think they probably raise enough chickens to have a supply of chicken meat. I was assuming they're grocery store chickens. That'd be my guess. I would guess they'd also get squeamish about bringing them to the butcher. Mm-hmm. Or doing it themselves. Yeah. I can't, I don't even want to imagine the nightmare of them trying to do it themselves no. from like a YouTube video. Yeah. In 1997, I don't think you could even do it from a YouTube video. I don't think so. And speaking of escalation, a nice escalation I thought about here is the way that the panic triples when the kids realize nobody is taking them seriously. They think this giant horrifying thing is happening to them and they try to show mom and crystal's like do you hear cole clucking and mom just says yes very nice clucking (laughs) i'm busy so they grab some orange juice and pop tarts and do not stay to help they run off to see if anthony's going through the same thing yeah and on their way they run to vanessa (laughs) and they're sort of clucking and she says buck buck do you too and she goes on her merry way yeah she thinks it's funny well and then my question is was she invited to the barbecue i doubt that she was the parents know about her because the kids talk about her her all the time. So I was like, oh, that's awkward. Because I was wondering if she's going to end up being at the barbecue, but she's not. Yeah, I would think she's a vegetarian. I know yeah. she has a cookbook about how to cook chicken in her library, but I mean, I have cookbooks that have, they're like vintage cookbooks I think are funny that have all kinds of meat recipes in them and I don't eat meat. Yeah, I think that she more collects vintage cookbooks. Right. They go to Anthony's and they ask if something weird's been happening. He's like, yeah, I've been putting really well. Has that been happening for you too? <laughs> and he also doesn't notice anything's wrong with him. 
like that their lips are turning into beaks or anything. So there's this real sense of is my real sense of reality wrong? Well, do you think that what's really happened is that she's created something psychosomatic? I think that's possible. Made them think that they're turning into chickens. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a possibility for sure. They go back home, and when Crystal goes inside to help, Mom says, "What is your brother doing in the chicken coop? He's in there and he's pecking seeds." And she says, "Go get him out of there so that you all can help." Yeah, and we get the body horror also building here, where her fingers, uh, Crystal's fingers, are starting to turn scraggly like talons. Mm-hmm. She's also gagging on the smell of roasted chicken. She's trying to pluck out her feathers, and then yeah, her mom wants her to go and take care of her brother. And that image of him out there plucking seeds off the ground and unable to stop himself, I thought it was really effective. He must know what he looks like to people, and at the same time, he can't stop himself. And then she goes, and she's compelled to do it too. Exactly. She's like, I could not help myself. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to the next day and we learn everyone thought they were doing some kind of weird joke and it was just awkward, but their parents are furious. And mom's also mad that she, they won't eat her chicken. Yeah. Well, maybe no, maybe not many people like your chicken if there's all this leftover. Well, the also the idea of eating chicken at all makes her sick. Crystal says it makes it feel like her insides are turning inside out. Yeah. And so she and Cole, they also have to keep plucking so that mom and dad won't see. Yeah, they say they hide their feathers in Crystal's sweater drawer. And I said, what's a sweater drawer? <laughs> Then I remembered you have one. Yeah. Just for people with lots of sweaters, you could have a whole drawer for them. Yeah. As Crystal is dealing with all this, her coach comes up to her and asks if she'd start the basketball game because one of the girls is sick. This is the worst possible timing. When she does, you know, they get the ball, but she cannot run without leaning forward and bobbing her head. And she also starts folding her arms in. And her knees won't bend anymore. I just kept thinking about the joint pain she's going Mm -hmm. through. You know that scene in Adam's Family where Morticia Adams is reading Hansel and Gretel to the children? Yeah. And she talks about the witch being pushed into the fire and screaming in agony. And she says to the children... Now, what do you think that must have felt like? And they all start crying. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how I feel reading this scene right now. I'm yeah. Like, if you don't get how chicken chicken is scary, imagine not only the social shame of that happening to you, but trying to run while your knees have fused so that they don't bend anymore and your head's like bobbing all around. And then white feathers are growing on her legs. So, yeah. yeah so she does another runaway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this yeah is it's like mortifying, a, it's too. It's mortifying, and it's physically painful. Yeah. It's like, what's going to be the long-term damage of this, even if I reverse the spell? Their parents are away that evening, and Crystal realizes what they have to do. They have to go apologize. They get to her house, and Vanessa doesn't seem to be there. They sort of peek inside the window and see she has a lot of books, so she oh. must be a witch. Can I also note, on their way there, they pass the donut store where Mrs. Wagner is cooking donuts, and Crystal thinks, will I ever be able to taste a donut again? Aww. Which I feel like is a, qu- a question you would appreciate her concern over. It was. But yeah, so Vanessa has a lot of books. And also her house smells like coffee and peppery spices. Yeah, she seems so cool. I want to hang out with her. Yeah. But in this, in Goshen Falls, there's nothing more suspicious than books and spices. That's right. (laughs) And then they go inside. There's a cat in there. And I I was convinced this was going to be a Sarah Beth situation where that ended up being her, but it, it wasn't. There's also an oil painting of Vanessa that they get spooked by. Part of me wonders at this point if their brains are also becoming more chicken-like and they're mm. like, like, you know how Scared sometimes... Scared of a picture. Yeah, like sometimes how when Mina walks by a mirror and she gets really surprised. Yeah. Yeah, like that. That has never happened to me, for sure. <laughs> I think you might be right about that. Also, I just think it's strange, though, that she has a life-size oil painting of herself. I agree. Um, I mean, how do you explain that when you bring people over? Be like, I really like the way I look. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, good for her. I'm sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I see how you can make it play off. You can do anything if you just have confidence, man. Good advice. Difficult in practice. There you go. So they find a book called Chicken, Chicken, Chicken. Three chickens. And they don't look in it They first. do not even open it. They steal it and bring it home. And then we get the joke from To Serve Man from the Twilight Zone, where they open it mm-hmm. and it's a cookbook. I wrote that down too, yeah. The idea of an entire book of chicken recipes makes Crystal horribly nauseous. And also, her teeth have started to sink back into her gums. Mm-hmm. Which, again, that must be super painful. And also, tooth horror, like tooth falling out horror, that's one that really gets me. It's also accelerating really quickly, because then Mm -hmm. when they turn to go back to Vanessa's, they're realizing that they're having vision problems because their eyes are moving to the sides of their head and their heads are getting narrower. They're becoming prey animals. Yeah. And I really liked that it addressed the vision issue that you wouldn't be able to see the way you're used to, because you won't have that same level of depth reception. Yes. It's uh, more attentive to how bad this would be, even than why. I'm afraid of 
bees. Yes, much more. <laughs> they go inside. Back at Vanessa's house. Back at Vanessa's house. They drop the book on the table. And then Crystal gets distracted by sunflower seeds on the coffee table. And she sticks her whole face in the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cole finds some spell books. And he's looking and they look at the table of contents. And there's only human into chicken. There's no chicken into human. And they decide they'll just say the spell backwards or do the spell backwards. It was it was kind of strange. Yeah. Again, my only thought for that is that they now have chicken brains. So maybe that's why. Yeah, maybe that's why it made sense to them. I feel like their approach to these books makes as much sense as the guy in How I Learned to Fly. Yeah. People have an odd relationship to books in the Gooseverse, which is surprising for a book <laughs> Since series. Since their books. Yeah. But books for kids who don't like to read. That's true. And for kids who do. But yeah. I think R.L. Stein was targeting kids who otherwise wouldn't read. That's true. So maybe it makes sense that books would be strange and <laughs> and incomprehensible. Yeah. Like, but you know what's not incomprehensible? These books. She reads the spell backwards and they become jumbo chickens. <laughs> and then she does it again and they become teeny tiny little chicks. And my next note is, aw. Yeah. But it's not so great because there's a cat in the room. Yeah. And the cat starts playing with her like it's playing with its food. It starts batting her around, putting it in its mouth, dropping it again. We had this in Legend of the Lost Legend, but it makes a lot more sense here when they're tiny birds and this is just a cat doing cat things. Well, they were giant cats in Legend of the Lost Legend. They were. I just felt like, again, it's virtually the same scene, but I just, it made more sense to me here. Yeah, because they're birds. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. The cat starts to squeeze, looks like it's going to kill them, but then Vanessa shows up and picks them both up and is like, little birds. They see her typewriter because she's a hipster. Yeah, I was like, of course she has a typewriter. <laughs> oh, she's also, again, her kind of wicked sense of humor. She's like, you know, if I just send you on home, you're going to get eaten. <laughs> Um, she's really enjoying herself. Mm-hmm. And so they jump on the typewriter and type in apology. Vanessa says, I'm sorry, it's too late. And then Crystal types, please, without the E, because she's too tired to even do that. And then Vanessa's delighted. She says, good manners are so important. So, yeah, she's yeah. like, the whole reason I turned you into chickens is because you didn't apologize the way Anthony did that day. Yeah, and she says, all of her books are etiquette books. They're not even spell books. Which is weird, because just a minute ago, the kids are like, all of these books are magic books. Is it just because the concept of etiquette is so foreign to them? It might be. I think it might be that for that to make sense, because this the spell book is clearly a spell book. So somehow Vanessa must define spell casting as a type of politeness. I mean, politeness is a series of rituals, right? Yeah. So it's very similar in that way. I actually have a note on politeness in theories, which relates to this. Excellent. Oh, my next note is, does she write a Dear Prudence column on that typewriter? Like, I, this is what I imagine for her. It was like oh. writing for like the New York Times food section and also writing like advice columns and like Dear Emily Post type of things. I think that makes sense. Since she's living on a writer's salary, she is writing for the New York Times, but living in Goshen Falls. <laughs> Or she can afford a house. Yeah. Crystal then writes a thank you note. You know, thank you for teaching us about this. Yeah, which I thought was interesting because it's basically politeness is a way of getting people to do what you want. It is. Yeah, yeah. I know. And so Vanessa is just totally charmed by this. And she says, all right, I'll change you back. And then she's like, you thirsty? I'll get you a soda. And then Cole burps. My next note is, no, you fool. Yeah. Crystal laughs. And so Vanessa points at them and says, pig, pig. Lessons not learned. But I think she might have just been joking because she would have had to do a whole lead up spell before that, which is what we find out, too, with the chicken chicken spell. She had to do some prep work at home. But that's the thing is she didn't. She might have. She, and just I guess like, she might have. If someone pisses me off today, I'm going to finish this spell on them. Well, I mean, I wonder if she just has a whole bunch of spells prepped. It's, it's possible. Yeah. Taxonomies. Taxonomies. My first one is animal people. Animal people. People that are part animal or turned into animals. Honestly, the first one I thought of was Animal Farm because of the scene at the very end where the pigs have kind of transformed themselves into people and they're walking upright and things and how it's played as this kind of grotesque moment. And I think you get a similar thing in here where they're in between animal and human and that's particularly grotesque. Another obvious example is Circe in the Odyssey mm-hmm. who turns Odysseus's crewmen into pigs. The coolest one I found, and the most relevant, is a 1967 film called The Vulture, which is about... Have you heard of this one? No, I heard about it when I was doing research for this. Oh, great. Go ahead, though. I didn't read the description that closely. Oh, well, it's about this person in the 18th century gets buried alive with a giant bird that he found while traveling in some ocean somewhere, and they genetically fuse in the grave, (laughs) and then he comes out again as this bird monster taking revenge on the community that wronged him. Then, this is a sidebar, but I just love this movie. It's not really a bird person movie, but there's an awesome bee horror film 
from 1987 called Stage Fright, which is about a guy with an owl head killing everybody. I've never seen it. I want to watch it with you. Yeah. I think you'd really like it. I bet I would. So I had some related taxonomies. Although it's funny, when you're talking about the pig thing, I thought you were going to bring up the apocryphal story about Jesus as a child. Oh, where he turned all the children into pigs? Yeah. Then their their mothers cooked them or something? He, he drives them into something that cooks them, and then but also, nobody can eat it because it's not kosher. Yeah. Because, like, teenage Jesus was a dick. Yeah, the old medieval apocryphal stories about Jesus are really wicked. <laughs> well, I had some related ones. So one And one of them is monstrous transformations. So one is ginger snaps, which is obviously a classic puberty werewolf story. Where, I had ginger snaps too. Yeah, werewolves really, I think, classically associated with puberty. Right. And that's a subtype of body horror, right? It's a real world phenomenon that happens where you get disgusted and embarrassed by your body changing. And then horror stories tackle it through these fantastical means. I actually had this as a subtype of body horror. Horror. Oh, cool. And I also was wondering about non-mammal transformations. And mm. again, the fly is the most obvious analog here. Yes. With Chicken Chicken, I think if you saw it done visually by the right director, it would be become... By David Cronenberg, yes. <laughs> yeah, it would become even clearer how effective this could be as a story. Yeah. I also had body horror with adolescent horror as a subtype. And Ginger Snaps was my example of adolescent horror as a subtype of body horror. You know, I feel like I always go to that one, but we have a bunch of 12-year-old protagonists who are so suddenly getting growth in new places and their skin's going all crusty and gross. And it's one of those things where A, it's painful and horrifying and B, you're not getting sympathy from anyone. I had two other examples of body horror that specifically has to do with animal transformation. One was the fly also, as you had, and then um, human centipede. <laughs> it's funny because I was, I, th I think we were probably Googling the same things and human centipede comes up a lot if you look for like body horror and transformation. I thought about it as someone kind of cursing people with being turned into kind of an animal, but yeah. not totally. Yeah. Eccentric loner. <laughs> yeah. And then one person who the, the front of the front of the centipede is like, I'm still a man. And yeah, yeah. And the others are like, but we're here too. Even though we can't talk. <laughs> related to your sort of adolescent subtype. So I had one that's not actually horror, but is related to sort of bodily transformations, which is the novel Middlesex. There's, I have not read yet. And I know I should. It's a, yeah. So the protagonist is intersex and it starts out as she and then goes to, to he. But when Cal is still Calliope, the book is still using she pronouns at this point, she starts getting hair on like face and things like that. And it's not quite the way that I think cis women experience that. But because they're in a Greek family, they're like, oh, it's actually just a kind of thing where like all the women go to this woman who does the waxing. And she has this whole like basically like streamlined process set up in doing these rituals of femininity. She's able to hide the ways in which her body is transforming differently than other other AFAB bodies. Yeah. And so in this story, I guess that would be similar to the way the kids are plucking out their feathers. Exactly. And trying to pass off the beak as dry lips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because equal to the horror of being out of control of their bodies is the horror of what people think of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And definitely in the small town, we've seen that what people think of you matters a lot. Yes. And so I can see why that would really terrify them, given that they know and have participated in what happens to people who are marginalized in the community. I'm sure watering the mail is not the worst thing that's been done to Vanessa. No, not at all. So I had curses and specifically where, because there's so many types of curse stories, right? The most recent Fear Street trilogy was all about a curse, but this is a different, this is a specific type of curse. It's you do something wrong and the person you did something wrong to takes revenge as a result. So it's like personal vengeance for wrongdoing. The obvious example is Drag Me to Hell, mm -hmm. Thinner. Mm -hmm. There's also Angel's Origin Story in Buffy. All of these things have something in common, which is the person doing the cursing is a Roma person. Ah. Yeah, that's such a a common yeah, horror trope. It really is. In this one, uh, R.L. Stein has departed from it by making her just a, a strange goth woman in town, but usually that's where these stories go. Some kind of outsider, yeah. Yeah. Someone who doesn't seem to fit in the community. Mm -hmm. And actually something I like about this type of story is unlike the type that we've talked about before, for example, in rural horror, where people are being horrible to someone and then that person wants revenge, but the person's revenge is so extreme that it enables you to not feel bad about what you did wrong in the first place. That's not how these stories work. These stories work in a way where it's like, you're getting what's coming to you. Yeah, exactly. And yes, you feel terrible, but you shouldn't have been terrible, which is something that different curse movies like The Grudge, that one scared me so much 
much when I saw it in theaters as a kid because there wasn't anything that you had done wrong. Mm-hmm. You just gone into the wrong house. Yeah, it gives you a nice amount of control when it can be because of a wrong done. There's hope you can rectify that behavior. Or just not do it in the first place. Yes. If you just are really anxious and careful all the time, you yeah. know, <laughs> nothing bad will happen. That's right. <laughs> That's the lesson. So I had food horror, uh, specifically thinking about eating something that is like you. Ooh. The classic example being Soylent Green. Yeah. Which is a really fun watch if you have not actually seen it. There's so much more to it than you know from the one line that you know. Yeah. And then there's the movie Violation. Skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this, but where essentially we are watching someone's vengeance play out in a way that comes around to the Titus Andronicus plotline. Ah. But with ice cream. Have I seen that one? Yeah, we watched it together. With ice cream? Yeah, where she kills a guy and grinds up his bones and mixes it into ice cream and feeds it to everyone. I don't think I've seen this movie. We saw it together. Maybe I fell asleep. Well, you commented on how like Titus Andronicus it was. Wow, I have blocked this out. (laughs) I will need to Google it so I can be reminded. It's a rape revenge story. Yep, I don't remember that. Okay, all right. But I I have a similar taxonomy point, which is meat horror. Nice. The main example I have from that one is the novel The Vegetarian. Nice. Where the woman starts getting terrified by the idea of eating meat and kind of stops eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then everybody is really freaked out by it and everybody has to like get her to eat like them. Like when mom is like, you have to eat this chicken. Yeah. I don't know why it's such a big deal to mom. (laughs) But I guess it's one of those things again with social pressure, right? This is the Mm -hmm. town that wants everyone to conform and resistance to someone not wanting to eat meat comes from that same place of being like, but if you don't do what I do, then how do I know that what I do is the best? You're making me feel bad. Yeah. What do you think? You're better than me? Exactly. You have to be the same as me. Yeah. Are you reading books? Have spices in your house? (laughs) Catch them in a glass bottle? (laughs) So I was looking through bird horror besides the obvious one. The birds and birdemic. Exactly. The pickens were kind of slim, actually. So the birds and then either birds remakes or sequels. So like Caw with a K, which is essentially a version of the birds done by sci-fi. There's Beaks, which is a Mexican horror take on the birds. And then there is Poultrygeist, (laughs) which is a um, musical comedy horror about zombie chickens. That's cool. There's Thanksgiving about an evil demonic turkey. We've mentioned that one before, I believe. There's the vulture, which you mentioned, and then the claw, which from 1957, which is about a giant bird. I think the thing about bird horror is because birds, similar to lizards, they have a recognizable face, but their expressions are blank. Mm -hmm. That's part of what makes people scared of them. You'd think there'd be more then, more treatment of them. So Goosepunks, if you're aware of bird horror that's not on this list, that's good, let us know. Well, I think the issue is that they're usually small, so that's why it's not horrifying. But I remember there was this movie I watched, I can't remember what it was called, but it was about cavemen. Mm-hmm. It came out in like maybe 2007 or 8. And there's a terror bird that attacks <laughs> some people. And that was super effective, which is one of those giant, it's now extinct, emu kind of a deal mm-hmm. with like a razor sharp beak. So people know that birds can be terrifying. It's just most of the time you're talking about a pigeon and it's not really going to hurt you. Well, I mean, there are different kinds of these terrors, right? One is there's swarms of them. So that yeah. makes up for the fact that a single pigeon is not super intimidating. Mm-hmm. Then there's like emus, which are terrifying. Yeah, the outsized ones. But then there's also... I mean, what this book is hitting, which I was expecting to see more of, is the transforming into a bird, you know, like the fly, like ginger snaps, because it's, I feel like with a werewolf, there's something about transforming into a wolf that's still like, you have a recognizable face and you're a mammal. Right. It's not as horrifying. Now that you mentioned, I'm sure there are many, in fact, I know there are many anamorphs cases where someone turns into a bird or gets stuck as a bird. But I think the reason why it might not come up more in transformation stories is because if we have a transformation story, either it's going to be something more familiar, like a werewolf or a were tiger or it'll be something like totally disgusting mm-hmm. and when we think of an animal that really grosses us out it's probably not a bird mm-hmm. it, that's true that's why things like the fly birds underexploited for horror potential i agree that's all i'm saying i agree So I had out of place in a small town stories. And so I'm thinking from Vanessa's perspective here, Mm -hmm. but I spit on your grave would be an extreme version of what she experiences out here. Mm -hmm. And then uh, something more like what she's experiencing would be Daria or Ghost World. She's just like, I do not fit in here. I dress different. I'm also turning my discomfort into a shield and just going to make fun of everybody. Mm -hmm. Similarly on Vanessa, I had pathological politeness. which is politeness taken to a violent extreme. Yeah. So one example would be hot fuzz, 
where this entire... I didn't even think of that. That's so good. Yeah, this entire conspiracy of this town is we have to keep it nice so we can win the small town award or whatever it is. Yeah. And then season one of The Purge, the TV series, there is one plot line where this guy interrupts everybody else's plot line and is rounding them up to purge them. And we find out that one of the reasons one of the people is there is that like he opened a door and she walked through it and didn't say thank you. And so he's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. That's great. It, of course, also makes me think of the episode of The X-Files, Arcadia, where yes. Mulder and Scully violate the housing... Uh, the housing Homeowners Association? CCRs. Yeah, the community... CCNRs, Community Codes and Regulations. Right. <laughs> and so a monster wants to yeah. kill them for having a tacky mailbox or yeah. whatever. I had one final small point, which is just reality warps. So where you see something horrifying happening to you and no one else can see it. Yeah. And my big, ex- my big example for that is It Follows. Yeah. Where there's a monster chasing some of these kids, but no one else can see it. And you can only see it once you've kind of been marked. Yeah, because other people are not taking all of this seriously. So no, not at all. That's they- one of the scarier parts about this book, I'd say. Shared universe? Shared universe. Clarissa and Vanessa, did they perform the same spell? Well, that was what I was wondering. I guess it'd have to be not chicken, chicken, but like bird, bird. (laughs) I also had a question about what their connection was. Is it, do they use the same spell book? Are they in the same coven? Are they, I don't think they're the same person. It's possible that Vanessa has reinvented herself. She seems like someone who would pick new names at various points in her life. But keep similar sounds. Yeah. Vanessa, Clarissa. Yeah. What's it about the SSA ending that to R.L. Stein reads creepy? I don't know. No, <laughs> just you know, just minding my own business over Alyssa. here. Alyssa, <laughs> do you think that maybe there's some sort of specific magic about bird things, or I don't know? How do you how do you see that connection going? I mean, birds play a big role in magic, right? Augury has to do with reading birds for signs of the future. And it, actually, that kind of leads into a related question I had, which is about the place of birds in the Gooseverse, because we've had so many bird children. Like, I've been flagging them as we've gone along. Just to give a few examples, Evan's dad used to get called chicken as a child in Monster Blood. We have bird in Say Cheese and Die. Emily from Werewolf of Fever Swamp looks like a bird. Sam Bird turns into a bird. Clay in Horrorland looks like an owl. Mom and Tara cluck and chirp in Cuckoo. There's a battling bird boy in Mutant. So there's so many birds in the goose first. Their choir teacher looks like a bird. They talk about it a lot. She calls them her canaries. Yeah, Yeah, and they say she looks like a sparrow. Mm -hmm. Right. So birds have a prominent place in R.L. Stein's writing. Maybe answering that question can help us understand what their connection is to magic. Maybe if people look so much like birds, it's already sort of suggested to the Mm. people casting the spells. Like, oh, bird. Seems appropriate. Maybe it's easy, too. Maybe it's just one of the spells everyone learns how to do. It's like the free one before you have to subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get the first five minutes free. Yeah. Or the first few. It's it's the part get, available on Google Books. Yeah. You get sparrow, pigeon, chicken, and like, I don't know, seagull and crow for free. And then the, the rest you have to like actually buy the book. And the rest are things other than birds. Yeah. <laughs> or more impressive birds. Yeah. Are you saying that the that chickens aren't more impressive? No, I, I find them impressive. I even pulled some chicken facts for later. Oh, I can't wait. So, yeah, I definitely think Clarissa and Vanessa at least know some people in common. And I hope they're friends. I think they move in the same circles. I also, just on this point of bird children, I was also thinking about cat nightmares. Mm-hmm. So cats are so prominent in the goose verse. Again, a little bit of a list here. We mentioned the ones in Legend of the Lost Legend. There was the room full of terrifying cats and headless ghosts. We had in Beware the Snowman that nightmare of a bunch of kittens melding into one and screeching. I know Arl Stein, people have told me he has mentioned at some point not really liking cats, but I wonder if we get a sense of what cats represent or do in the goose verse. Well, if you have a bunch of people who are bird-like, it does suggest a natural predator. Yeah. Cats are very chaotic. For example, when they went into Vanessa's house and the cat was acting testy, I was like, well, yeah, what did you expect? Like, that's a cat. <laughs> it doesn't want you in its house. They're domesticated, but they really are murderous. So I can see that being a source of suspicion. Yeah, because so many of the people in Gooseverse are also domesticated, but don't necessarily enjoy that. So the cat's kind of their shadow self, right? That mm-hmm. gets to be a jerk. Yeah. Run under your legs while you're moving a piano. Yeah. I'll knock this cup onto the ground, goddammit. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the idea of seeing a cat toy with a little baby chick or whatever, pretending to eat it and then letting it go and then capturing it again. I guess it would be a way a lot of suburban children first encounter the cruelty of nature. That's true. Effective horror. So I was wondering how you saw the farm, such as it is in this book, compared to really the only other farm we've gotten so far, which is the grandparents in The Scarecrow Walks at Midnight. 
I would say one big difference I immediately go to is thinking about the difference between these two types of farming communities. It seems to me that the scarecrow walks at midnight, the grandparents are actually working farmers who Mm -hmm. are trying to make their living off of a farm, whereas maybe the people in this community, even Lucy Ann's family, who is comparatively wealthy, maybe they do other things other than just farming, you know, maybe seasonal hay rides and weddings and things, because the reason I say that is a difference I notice is Stanley in Scarecrow Walks at Midnight, he's definitely different and he's exploited, but no one's like, oh, let's all ignore Stanley on the edge of town. Whereas this community is, which is so much more of a, I feel, suburbs attitude. Mm, Like this person doesn't fit in, right? Mm -hmm. One difference that stands out to me is that the people who are really trying to work a farm don't care if someone is different. They're just like, can you do this work? And this community, which is not primarily concerned about its farm labor making a profit, spends more time I'm worrying about whether someone is wearing the right clothes. I think that maybe in the first case, they do care about whether they're different, but they're like, we can still work with you. Like if you have something useful to offer, we can exploit you. Right. We're not going to ostracize you because we need all hands on deck. Yes. I also wonder if Lucy Ann's family is more like, they have more of an industrial farm set up. Maybe, maybe yeah. they're managing it or something like that. They yeah. have people working at who they don't know the names of. and They have their own Stanleys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be how you make money as a farmer is either, like I said, you're mostly not far- making your money from farming or you have just a huge farm. And I guess we don't know anything about where the other children from the middle school come from. Just Def- away. <laughs> away. Yeah. And definitely these kids' farm is a, it's a backyard. Did you have any other thoughts about what we're seeing in the world of farming in the Goosebumps books? I mean, I think it was just so striking because this is only the second farm we've seen. And I felt like Arlstein took, just took lots of care describing this community. I know. I really loved that. Yeah. Whereas I think that the farm in Scarecrow Walks at Midnight, it was very much, we are isolated on this farm and the farm is the world, whereas this, even though it's a small town, this world felt larger. Uh Definitely more interconnected. And that makes for a different type of horror, right? Mm -hmm. If you're scared, you can just run somewhere and there's a place to go to as opposed to on that farm where you're just, you're in the middle of nowhere. Running running into the cornfields. No one can help you. Yeah, I thought it was really... Both, t- both types are very effective. Do you have something to say to me about chickens? I was trying to think about reasons why people might dunk on this, and one might be that chickens are maybe not inherently scary, or they're ordinary, or something like that. I mean, I think people who don't think they're inherently scary haven't tried to pet one. That's true, but I just tried to pull some reasons why this is a good horror choice. Yeah. Not all of the facts I found about chickens were relevant here. But I, I think you're right yeah. that that is probably part of it. It's, but again, it's like, well, think about, though, if you were actually turned into a chicken. Also, thinking about to stay out of the basement, which I don't think anyone dislikes. There's nothing inherently scary about tomatoes. But once they have faces, then that's upsetting. It is, yeah. They're moaning for help. So one thing I learned is there are more chickens in the world than humans. One number I saw was something like 28 billion. Like, they way outnumber us. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yes, because we farm them them. and eat them. But just, like, if you were going to go at it from the perspective of a, like, uprising scenario, they... Would probably win if they had the energy. (laughs) Yeah, if they had the get up and go. And worked quickly before we... Ate them? grabbed a gun or yeah. something. Yeah. They can remember the faces of over a hundred different people and animals. That's more than me. <laughs> no. Well, and, and crows are known for this too and ravens and they, so chickens will also teach each other and teach their young stuff. So theoretically they could hold grudges. They could pass grudges down through the generations. Oh, yeah. Play the long game. That's right. That's cool. They have complex communication, including with unhatched chicks. The mothers will chirp at their chicks when they're, you know, in, close, the, egg. in the egg and they'll peep back. Wow. That's so cute. Yeah. It's like when you shine a flashlight on your baby bump and it's like, hey, <laughs> stop it. But it's like not annoying it. Just assuming. <laughs> yeah. The best fact of all time, they're the closest living relative of the T-Rex. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Do you feel that these facts justify their place in horror and you'd like to see more of it? I don't know if they justify it so much. I would love to see something done with the, the T-Rex situation that's not a ripoff of Jurassic Park. So something where the chickens start evolving back towards T-Rex? Yeah. There was also... I remember reading an article once about somebody who was talking about theoretically you could genetically engineer a chicken to look more like a T-Rex, but really what you'd end up with was a like horribly deformed and like miserable chicken. Well, and especially because it's like, well, to look more like an artist's rendition of a T-Rex, right? Yeah. And like, just because they're genetically the closest thing doesn't mean that they're like a T-Rex in many significant ways, except with scary feet. Goosepunks, if you haven't looked at this image before, Google something along the lines of artist rendition of what ordinary animals would look like if we drew them the way we drew dinosaurs. Yeah, there was, I think BuzzFeed did an article about it. The way we draw dinosaurs is very much like, here is the bone structure. Let's follow it immediately. Now let's add some scary details like evil eyes. (laughs) And 
anything would look bizarre that way. Yeah. So we don't we don't really know what T-Rex looked like, but that's cool. I don't know. I think especially the part about them holding grudges across generations could be really effective. Yeah. That's me extrapolating. None of these articles said that they hold grudges, but, but, they, they, but could. they could. <laughs> I just had a little bit to say about politeness, which I think you actually put it together for me already. I just looked up a little bit about politeness theory, and the people who have written the most about it are Penelope Brown and Stephen Levinson. Their point about what politeness politeness is, is it's a tool for maintaining social distance. Mm -hmm. So they kind of break it down into all politeness interactions have to do with the relative power of the person speaking and the person being addressed, how difficult the act being requested is, and then um, how much social distance there is between, and I don't mean six feet, (laughs) I mean, how much, you know, is this person... um, Of my social standing or above or below it. Exactly. And so those are the things that determine what do degree of politeness a person is going to use. But as we were pointing out earlier, it's all a way of getting someone to do what you want. And somehow we interpret that as flattering because it's like, well, you've acknowledged your position relative to me. And it can work the other way, right? Where if someone's totally impolite, you're like, oh, I'm so much less than this person and I have to do what they say and trip over myself for them. It's kind of gross. Something I was thinking about is why is this book revolving around politeness? And I think the answer for me comes in what we were saying about Vanessa saying all her books are about politeness because because then magic, for her, it's about politeness in that it creates the type of social relationships you want, right? It regulates a distance between you and someone else or puts them in the role that you feel they should be relative to you. Whereas literally no one else will do that for her without her forcing it. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because politeness, when you sort of think about it in those terms, it's clearly a mechanism for maintaining class status, gender hierarchies, racial hierarchies, class hierarchies, and also if you think about neurological ability too, right? Yes. And that's the big irony of it, right, is because it's so often thought of as something used to just make everybody more comfortable. But actually, there's a reason the upwardly mobile middle class loves it. And that's because it's all about trying to define your relationship power-wise to someone else, because that's insecure for someone who is trying to be upwardly mobile. Both you and I have talked about how in teaching, we have to be more flattering and polite than some of our male colleagues do because it's received very differently even by people who are there to to learn something. Oh, it annoys the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. Here's what annoys the hell out of me about it. So I'm pretty smart. I know you are too. But if I just act smart in front of my students, A, I feel like they're not going to learn anything because my goal is to get them to be smart, to like think of ideas themselves. So just displaying my, my thoughtful ideas and having them admire it and write them down isn't doing anything for them on an educational level. And second, if I'm just doing that, there is a high likelihood that my students would think, oh, this person just drones on and on or like doesn't care what we think or whatever. And there have been a lot of studies done of student evaluations looking at what they believe the gender presentation or race of the person to be affects affects evaluations of the same material. Right, exactly. So if a student says something, my response is always to be like, oh, that's, that's a really thoughtful point. Like, here's another way of thinking about it. Or, oh, that's a really good point. I wonder if we could extrapolate into this better thing than what you actually said. Because you know, and sometimes, obviously, students say like great things in class, come up with great ideas in class a lot. But a lot of times they really don't. And I don't actually have the power to be like, well, that's not a very good idea, actually. Or, oh, I don't think that's right. Because if I do that, his student feels completely destroyed and B, everyone thinks I'm an asshole. Whereas, like, I don't know if you want to talk about, like, male friends. Yeah, it's just like I've uh, anecdotally talked to some male friends who are very much like, oh, that's wrong. Or, and here's why it's wrong. And it's like, oh. But when they say that to their students. When they say that to their students, and it's like, well, that sounds like a faster and more straightforward way of getting to the same idea that requires less emotional labor. And I'll never be able to do that. No. And in part, like you said, I don't want to because it's important to not just shut people down because that that's not what teaching is. And Right. Yeah. But, but that's how on a lot of male teachers' evaluations, it'll say, guy's such a genius. Mm-hmm. And on mine, it'll say, oh, you're really helpful. Yeah. You're yeah. really enthusiastic. And it's like, I am smarter than you. Well, it's a thing is like I, I, I want acknowledgement for had that. a student once who was like making points about something that I have done a book's level of research on. And I was explaining to him like, no, that's incorrect. And he's like, well, Dr. Michael Crichton says this. It's like, well, first of all, Dr. Dr. Michael Crichton. He's a fucking medical doctor. Like We've he doesn't have a PhD. We've so times in this episode. Um, yeah. But like he was like trying to talk about climate change and eugenics. And like is like he's not an expert on these things. And like the fact that you'll write Dr. Michael Crichton in your paper and you write Miss in 
front of my name. Like, I have a fucking PhD. Like, I don't know. And it was, but what was the most frustrating and like just soul destroying about that interaction was like, no matter how well informed I am, like no matter how much research I've done, no matter what my actual title and degree status is, this kid won't listen to anything coming from me. It has to come from another white cis male Mm -hmm. who is, you know, straight presenting. And that's the end of the story. And it's so fucking frustrating. And that's also why like politeness gets you a lot of things, right? That sort of like niceness, it does help massage some of those ideas. It does make people more receptive. And I'm so angry about it. Yeah, because what it does is it it reinforces the power structure, right? Every time I have to be like, oh, well, you know, I think that's an interesting idea, you know, but... Right. If I, when I have to caveat in that way, also happens in meetings with colleagues and things. Yeah, it happens all the time. It happens right. with friends. Like, yeah. but when you're doing that, you are participating in the power structure and being like, "This is fine." Like this person, because they won't listen unless I do this, I'm going to do this for them. When it's like, I don't want to be doing this for them. I don't yeah. want to up talk. That's what's so frustrating. It's very much like you are forcing me to participate in my own oppression, and I hate you for it. Like it's yeah. And talking about adolescent horror, actually, so. So as like regular listeners know, I'm non-binary and I haven't gone through any medical transition at this point. I'm still thinking about some things and I have a lot of reasons for it. But one thing I'm very interested in is voice coaching because I remember as a 12-year-old having to start speaking differently in order to get people not to respond to me horribly. And I feel like my voice I have now isn't my natural voice. Mm-hmm. It's one that was forced on me through shame. <laughs> and I mean, whatever. Like, I don't I don't have a problem with myself, but that is something where I feel like that's not me. The feminization of my voice was not me. So that's a fun, yeah. fun... Uh, oh, speaking of gender shit... Who are we reading next? Oh, we are reading The Train by Diane Ho. Yes, our first Diane Ho book, our second non-Arl Stein book. Our and f- our first female author. Yeah. This is from the Point Horror series, so we're returning to the world of YA horror next time. Very excited for it. it. The premise sounds great. Oh, so on a scale of one to five bewares, what would you give Chicken Chicken? Four. I'm giving it a four. Yeah. For all the reasons I said. I'd go so far as to give it a 4.25. Ooh. I think the 0.25 is mostly a bump, just as sort of a like, I'm going to be defiant and oppositional, but... Yeah. I'm really trying not to be. I'm trying to be honest, but I I thought this was a really fun I really enjoyed it, yeah. And scary and I'm so it was so much better than how I learned to fly. Oh my god. Well, Goosepunks, tell us what you think. We'd love to hear your own ideas about Chicken Chicken. Do you know facts about chickens? Yeah, we'd love to hear your ideas about chicken horror, too. So you can tell us by writing us an email at saypodanddie at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with us on social media at saypodanddie on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Helps us reach more Goosepunks, and it makes us feel happy. It really does. We've been getting some awesome reviews lately, and we appreciate them all. It really makes us feel like you enjoy this. Yeah. Which is great. Yes. Better than a teaching evaluation any day. Yes, absolutely. Listener beware. Those Those were the scares. Good boo. Good boo. I suddenly realized that something was wrong. That loud clicking sound I heard. It was coming from me. I rubbed my lips with my finger. They felt dry, sort of cracked and dry. I tried to chew a forkful of cake, but each bite made that loud clicking sound. I started to choke. A few kids were staring at me. Crystal, are you okay? Someone asked. I clicked to reply. Then I hurried to Lucienne at the table. Do you have any chapstick? I demanded shrilly. She struggled to understand me. Chapstick, I repeated. Chipstick. She nodded, narrowing her eyes to study me. In the medicine chest, downstairs. I pulled open the screen door and flew into the house. The bathroom door stood open. I stepped inside, clicked on the light, and shut the door behind me. Then I dove to the medicine cabinet and gazed in the mirror. It took a few seconds for my eyes to adjust. But when I finally could focus on my lips... I opened my mouth in a shrill scream of horror.